would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John 17. And I would invite you to follow with me as I read the first five verses. John 17, beginning with verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Isn't it astounding that we have on record this prayer of the Lord Jesus to look into his own devotional life, as it were, to peer into the things he had principal concern for, particularly on the threshold of his going to the cross, his dying for for the, the sins of his people. It's astounding that we have these words of prayer. And I think these words of prayer are for us to emulate, to pray as our Lord prayed. Not only as he taught us to pray, but also seeing the example that he has set for us in the prayers, in his own prayer in John 17. Having taught his disciples the three chapters of the farewell discourse, he now prays for them. And he prays for them apparently in their presence, lifting up his eyes to heaven and offering this prayer of intimacy and passionate boldness before his sufferings. Now this first part of the prayer that I read in your hearing this morning is one in which Jesus prays primarily for himself, primarily for his own glory in the presence of his Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. What does this mean? Glorify your Son. What is this glory that Jesus prays for? That's the first thing we want to look at this morning. Look at this glory that Jesus prays for. What does it mean? Glorify your Son. Secondly, we want to say something about why does He need to be glorified. Is there something lacking in him? Is there something not altogether glorious in the person of the Lord Jesus? What is this need for glory? Why does he pray for this glory? Not only what is it, but why does he pray for it? Then we want to look at when is it that this glory will take place? What um, uh, At this time he prays, but now he's expecting glory, that God will hear his prayer for glory, when actually is the Son of God glorified. And then finally, we want to say something about who are the beneficiaries? Who is it that receives the, the benefit of this glory the Son of God prays for? So those are the things we want to look at this morning in our message. What's the glory that Jesus prayed for? Why does he need this glory? When is this glory to take place? 
And who are the beneficiaries of this glory that our Lord Jesus prays for? Let's begin with the glory itself. What does it mean, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you? What is glory? Well, glory is an expression we find often in the Old Testament as an expression of the value of something, the dignity of something. The actual Hebrew word, the Hebrew word kavod, is a word that literally means weight. Weight. You see, in the ancient world, a man could be judged by the weight of his possessions. What he had and as his possessions. That would be a weighty person. Or we sometimes say a person of substance. That's the idea behind it. I remember when I used to be a teenage, when I was a teenager and I was broke and I was kind of like part of the youth culture of the 60s and I took to the road because I read a book by a guy named Jack Kerouac on the subject of on the road and I emulated some of his experiences it was, well, anyway one of the things I did was I traveled light I traveled light I had the I had the shirt on my back, basically. I wore my possessions. Uh, um, But a person of substance, a person of glory, is a person that has lots of possessions. God's glory is estimated by the weight of his own attributes. The things that God possesses in himself. His wisdom, his power, his goodness, his mercy, his love. That is the glory of God revealed in his attributes. Now, the weightiness of divine glory was seen in the way that God's presence appeared to Israel. God met them on Mount Sinai in the cloud of glory. But it was a cloud that actually covered his glory. And even though there were flashes of lightning and fire and thunder... And a voice that spoke from heaven that the people said, no more of this. Moses, you go up to the mountain. You get the word. You bring it back to us. We don't want to hear God speaking to us in this manner. It filled them with dread. The presence of the glory of this God. But yet God appeared in glory on that mountain. And later on that glory cloud descended and it was in the temple. Remember the glory cloud filled the tabernacle that they had built? I shouldn't say the temple. First the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it was filled the place that Moses couldn't even get near it. God spoke from within the tabernacle as his Shekinah, the glory of his presence, was in that sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. And God spoke out from the Holy of Holies to Moses to bring the word that he gave to Moses to the people. And so glory is the mark of of divine presence. The fullness of divine attributes. And when Moses saw the glory cloud on Sinai, God was, his glory was was surrounded by the cloud. No man could see me and live, God said. Moses prayed, show me your glory. I want to see more than just the cloud of your glory. I want to see something more than just your glory covered over or masked by the glory cloud. I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. In chapter 34 of Exodus, and God's response 33 of Exodus, and God's response was, No man shall see me and live. God's glory broke forth 
man could not exist in the presence of everlasting burnings, as Isaiah tells us. And that glory cloud was for, the, his, for Moses' protection. And yet Moses desired to see more of God. And you know what God said? Well, you can't see my glory in terms of the fullness of who and what I am. No man can see that. No mere creature can behold God in all of his infin- infinitude and, and majesty and, 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 and transcendence and, 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 and what the scripture calls glory. But I'll make all my goodness pass before you. That's an aspect of God's glory is his goodness. And so God appears before him as he puts him in the, cle- in, in the cleft of the rock. And lets him see, the scripture says, his back parts and declares with his voice, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. And that becomes a refrain throughout the Old Testament to speak of the, of the goodness of God, of God's glory seen in his goodness. But God is a God of glory. His presence is marked by glory. The fullness of his attributes dwelling in the midst of his people. Again, the fullness of it you can never perceive. You can never compass. You could never understand in all of its length and breadth and height and depth. But yet God's presence in his wisdom and in his power and in his righteousness and in his truth leads his people, teaches his people, works for them. In all of his love and goodness and strength. He is the glory of his people Israel. And in him they were to glory. Remember how Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength. But let him that glory, glory in this. That he knows me. The only true God. That he is the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In other words, all of his attributes comprise God's own glory. But if that's God's glory, the fullness of divine attributes, why does Jesus need to be glorified? Why does Jesus pray for glory? Did not all the fullness of deity dwell in him? Did he not say to Philip, He that has seen me has seen the Father? Does it not say in the prologue to this very gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld what? His glory. We beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Is this prayer an indication that something was lacking in Jesus? That Jesus was deficient in some way? Deficient in glory? Well, the full answer to such questions is to really unravel the riches of the church's teaching about the Trinity and of the Christology, which would require weeks and weeks of careful exposition. So I'm not giving you that this morning. I'm going to give you the simple answer. Say thank you, Pastor, for the simple answer. That's exactly what we need. We need simple answers to difficult questions. Well, again, this, this is not the complete answer, but it is a simple one. And I think it's easy to, to conceive of that our Lord possessed the fullness of divine glory, yes, but not so much in his human nature. That was speaking about his divine nature that took to himself human flesh, took to himself a true humanity. 
But his human nature was human in every regard and in every respect. He was, Jesus was the second person of the Godhead eternally. Again, he's going to say, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. But now, what was that glory that Jesus had with the Father eternally like? Well, one thing it wasn't. It wasn't in flesh. It wasn't in flesh deity. It wasn't in flesh glory. It was the glory of the second person in relationship to the first person quite apart from any incarnation, quite apart from Christmas Day, quite apart from any word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But Jesus did come in human flesh. And when Jesus was in human flesh, what, what did they see? When the shepherds went out from the hillside at the, at the word of the angel to see the, the baby Jesus, this day that is born to us in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, what did they see? They saw a baby. They didn't see a baby with a halo around it. They didn't see some marks of divine nature. They had the word of who this baby was. Christ the Lord. The Savior. But all they saw was a baby. A baby whom Luke goes on to tell us grew. In wisdom and in stature. In favor with God and man, just like you did as a child, growing up, growing in wisdom and in stature. Jesus had, as a human baby, had to be taught to speak the Hebrew language or the Aramaic language. He had to be taught manners. He had to be taught to his, his Hebrew alphabet. He had to learn, just as any Hebrew child would have learned. And yet he was all the while, in terms of his person, the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son of God, eternally begotten, and yet come in human flesh. In his divine nature he possessed the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world. But that was a normal human nature. And all you would see is a human body. A true body, a true soul, a true, a true human mind, a true human will, a true human emotions that Jesus possessed. Jesus rejoiced. Jesus wept. He was a true man in every respect. This is now the God-man. About to go to the cross to lay down his life. A ransom for many. Eternal deity does not lay down his life. God cannot die. But Jesus, the God-man, dies. The only sense in which God dies is in the humanity of Jesus. God does not die. God is the eternal God. So this glory that Jesus prays for, in part is that glory that he had with the Father from the foundation of the world, but in a new way, in a new dimension. It's in a true humanity that's now restored to divine presence. Again, the point of the whole thing is that though the glory of Jesus could be still seen in human flesh, I think walking on water you would have seen something of divine glory. I think calling upon the winds and the waves to be still, you'd see something of divine glory. Multiplying loaves and fish, you'd see something of divine glory. You can't explain these things just by human nature. 
There's something more than human nature to the person of Jesus. There is his divine nature. And yet unbelievers could still explain it away. Not everybody believed. He cast out demons, sure they said. He did it by Beelzebub. He is in cahoots with the powers of darkness. They, they explained it away. They rejected him. They hated him. They despised him. They did not see the glory of God before their eyes. They saw the man Christ Jesus, whom they could easily dispense with. But now his hour had come. Now he was to be glorified in the presence of God. In terms of his deity, yes, with glory he had eternally. But now we're the humanity that enters heaven. The humanity that enters the presence of God. And you've got to think about what this meant for humanity. Again, the Son of God came on a mission of mercy to a lost and a fallen world. To do what? To bring a fallen race of human beings back to God. Back to God. Humanity in sin was exiled from the, the presence of God, right? Adam and Eve were cast off forth from the garden. They could no longer be in the presence of God. But now Jesus came to bring us back to God. Came to bring us back to the garden. When Jesus hung upon the cross and the, and, and the thief who repented and said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, today, this day, you will be with me. Where? He said, in paradise. You know what paradise is? It's a Persian loan word that means garden. Today you'll be with me back in the garden. The garden of God's presence. That's what was on, that was what he was promising, that thief on the cross. That as he went into the presence of God, to stand in the presence of God for us, having obtained for us eternal redemption, mankind in sin can now be restored to God. We can come back to God, back to the garden, back to paradise. So what goes back to the presence of God is not the same that came from the presence of God. It came from the presence of God was the second person is taking a, a true humanity. What goes back to the presence of God is the God-man, Christ Jesus, to stand in God's presence, having obtained redemption and having brought restoration that we might come back to the presence of God through faith in Him. When is this glory to take place? That's my third question. Well, Jesus tells us. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the glory is to take place after the fulfillment of his work, the completion of his earthly work. What earthly work? Well, the earthly work of dying and rising. He ascends to the presence of the Father, having obtained life through his death. Dying that death of the cross through which the curse of sin is removed. The forces of darkness have been defeated. The reconciliation has been made between man and God. Humanity is now elevated from death to life eternal life in the presence of God in the hope of resurrection power to be lifted up into the presence of almighty God 
Jesus paves the way as the great high priest, the pioneer of our salvation, entering into the presence of God, having obtained salvation for a multitude that no man can number. Hebrews pictures his ascension in terms of bringing many sons to glory. He made the author of their salvation perfect through the work that he did in dying and rising from the dead. He says this is eternal life. This is the new quality of life. This is the new reality of living, of life. And again, it's not just endless duration of life. That's what Ponce de Leon was after, the fountain of youth. He was forever young. But to be forever young in the body of death, in the body of sin, that would not be life at all. That'd be, that'd be horror. I mean, vampires have eternal life in accordance with the, the myths. But that's not life. That's eternal death. But what God does is He gives us newness of life, a new quality of life. Life with Him. He is the author of life. In Him is the fullness of life. So it's life that was the life we were made to have in terms of creation. Life in God's image. Life in God's presence. Life in God's fellowship. Life in communion with He who is the author of life. This is life eternal. To know God. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, the Old Testament spoke of glory just being that of glorying in Israel's God. But now Israel's God has another dimension to his existence in terms of his being enfleshed in the Son of God. So that glory is to be not just in the Lord God alone as some singular entity, but now revealed to us fully, more fully, in terms of his relationship to his own eternal Son. And so eternal life is to know Jesus as well. The one whom God has sent. That's the God of the Christian. The God who is Father and Son as well as the the God who has revealed His Holy Spirit. And so it's upon the completion of His work we enter into this fullness of life. This fullness of glory. This fullness of fellowship with the God who is living and true. With the God whom to know is life eternal. And that brings us to consider briefly the beneficiaries of this prayer. Jesus prays for himself, yes. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Bring your Son back to your presence in the fullness of your glory, that his glory would be revealed in his ascension glory but not just as an end in itself he says glorify your son that the son may glorify you ultimately the beneficiary would be the father would be the glory of the father Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father and it's the father's glory that's placed upon full display in the work of the Son. That's the constant refrain of Scripture. 
Paul says in the Philippian letter, Therefore God highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and has given him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, we fully believe in the unified works of God. The God who works for our salvation is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that all glory is to be given to that, that God in terms of the triunity of His being. That our confession of Christ as Lord, our bowing the knee to Christ as Lord, does not create a Jesus-only cult. It creates a Trinitarian relationship with God the Father. It's through Christ we come to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is conscious that His own glory has as its great end that glory would be given to His Father. That glory would be received by Him, or through Him, to the triune God. But it's not only that the Father is the great beneficiary of this glory that the Son prays for, but it's also that all that He has given Him would also be ultimately the possessors of glory. You would think that glory would be sufficient for anyone to just be in God's presence eternally. But it's something absent from the presence of God that Jesus sees the need for. For he not only prays for himself, not only prays that the Father would be glorified through the Son, but he prays in the light of those whom he says are all whom you have given him. That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do, now I'm returning to you, but my return to you cannot be without these ones whom you've given me. Cannot be without these ones to whom eternal life is given through the work I've come to accomplish and achieve upon this earth. For the wonderful reality is our Lord concludes this prayer in part in verse 24 when he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. That refers to the present disciples he had who he been instructing in the upper room. That also includes all who would believe on his name through the apostolic word that he prays for also in this prayer. All of the redeemed, all of the chosen ones, all of the elect of God, the completed church that he came to build, that all whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' entrance into glory is to lead us to glory. Jesus' entrance into the presence of his Father has as its end that the entire church will come to that place of ultimate glorification in his presence. We're being conformed to his image and likeness. Again, it's interesting how scripture correlates glory and image. 
And man's been made in the image and glory of God. And our fall is a falling away from both image and glory. And Christ's work of restoration is to restore us back to the image of God and to know the glory of God in the presence of God eternally. That's what Jesus prays for. There's something incomplete about glory that does not have us there. Isn't that astounding? That the Son of God would consider His glory with the Father, His restoration to that glory, incomplete? If the penitent thief wasn't there? If He didn't bring to glory that group of disciples that He had so much trouble with and who were so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, and yet He loves them and desires them to be with Him in glory. It was in love He came into the world. And God loved this redeemed people. Set His love upon us that we should be not just given benefits apart from Him, but with Him. With Him. In His presence. The essence of glory is not just to be perfected in some abstract way. It's to be perfected in God's presence. It's to be with Him. The God whom to know is life eternal. Eternal life without God is not eternal life at all. It's a form of eternal death. It's a, because life is presence. Life is being with Him. Death is separation from God. And the wonder of God's salvation is God has come to bring us back to His presence, back to the garden, back to where we have the fullness of His love as those who have been chosen, redeemed, justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified together with Him. That's astounding. That's astounding. You children might wonder, what, what, what's heaven like? What would it be like to be in God's presence? Well, it's to be back to the place we've been created for. To know God, to walk with God, to commune with God, to have fellowship with God. That's what Jesus came into the world to bring us to. May he be thanked and praised and honored. May we hearts run out to him. In full expression of, of praise and love and thanksgiving for all that in his grace he's done for us, all that in his grace he's purposed for us, all that in his grace he will ultimately bring to full realization when he brings us into his presence with everlasting joy. Let's go before him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus and his achievements. We're thankful for the mission of mercy that he came into this world to achieve. We're thankful that he went back to your presence, having achieved that work, having done your work upon this earth, and, and he's thankful that he continues to do that work through the gospel. We're thankful we're the fruits of this prayer. We're thankful that we have expectation, not just of living a full life upon earth in your presence, but living life eternally before you in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where the centerpiece of existence in that eternal place will be your own presence among us. 
And so help us to live in that hope. Help us to labor in that hope. Help us to look to the future, not with foreboding and with dread, but with joy and delight. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to make us a people filled with thanksgiving and praise and holy joy as we consider what great things you have done for us. As we come and we ask for these mercies in Jesus' name, amen.